They're coming two tough new rules from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, but originating with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They have to do with contractor incident reporting and for how contractors button up unclassified systems. Analysis now from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, let's start with how much of the contractor world do you think these rules will even cover? Well, it really depends on how the FAR Council ends up refining the definitions. But as it is now, at least, the very first rule Uh, The cyber threat incident reporting rule could apply to at least 75% of contractors. The FAR Council said that in the proposed rule because it it touches anybody that has a contract that includes some information and communication technology, which is a hugely broad definition of things. Right, because even services contractors might have some hardware somewhere just to enable the delivery of the service that they're developing. They likely will. I can think of very few examples of contractors that really would have nothing to do with information technology. And it could spread. I mean, if they're providing a service or even developing software, which will run somewhere, if it runs on a cloud or there's some cloud service brought into this, that kind of brings the whole cloud chain in under this rule potentially. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen attacks that impact a huge swath of federal infrastructure just coming from one provider. So the reason that we need this to be so broad is because the impact could be so broad to the government. And the specific rule itself on incident reporting and information sharing, let's start with that one. What would it require contractors specifically to do here? So it's got a couple components. The first and biggest part of it is an obligation to report cyber incidents. And so under the DOD analogous rule, 252-204-7012, it's been around for quite a while now, you have to report a cyber incident that impacts contractor information system, which roughly means CUI is involved in some way. This rule goes a lot further. This requires contractors to disclose whenever they've discovered indicators that there's been a security incident, which is defined to include any event or series of events which pose actual or imminent jeopardy to the integrity, confidentiality, et cetera, of information systems. But not just that, also anything that could constitute a violation of a acceptable use policy. I don't know that they thought that part through because you remember there were cases in the last couple decades of people who violated use policies by, you know, say, misrepresenting your age on Facebook, that's technically a violation of a use policy. I don't think that's what the FAR Council is thinking, that they need reported to Homeland Security and then the FBI, but that's what the rules that they drafted suggest. Right. These rules originated with CISA, as we said at the top, and then now they're being delivered through the way they have to, the FAR Council. But it sounds like maybe they just threw everything they could think of into the basket And maybe in the commenting period, which I think goes to early December, they'll sort it out or pare it down. I think this is going to be an iterative process. You're going to get a bunch of comments and then another draft and then comments and draft. And I I think you're going to be looking at a rule probably later part of next year, if not in 2025. And the issue then, you know, is some of the large contractors have this capability. They have their own Knox, you know, network operations centers and security operations centers because they're that big. And so they can easily adapt probably. But small businesses and subcontractors may or may not have the ability to know, let alone develop a report of a possible breach, given the technology base they have and the knowledge they have. It'll be a learning curve, right? At the least, the government wants you to be able to, if you know or have indicators of an attack or potential attack, tell the government. 
because they want to know and be able to help. I, mean, I think a lot of this is the government wanting contractors to stop siloing information, get the government involved, get the FBI involved and stop the cyber attacks as early as possible. And then the other rule is standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems. That's incumbent on contractors also or on agencies? Uh, This is also on contractors, but it's got a little bit of both components, right? Because so DOD for many years now has been using the NIST 800-171 framework. We've got CMMC looming on the horizon that's essentially mirroring that same framework. Civilian agencies have been all over the place. Mostly, they've just been doing, well, almost nothing in a lot of their contracts. But then in the last year or two, I've started seeing clauses show up that are insanely broad and ill-defined and really doesn't tell, don't tell contractors what to do. They say things like, your information technology will comply with FISMA and various requirements that may or may not apply, and they don't tell you how they apply. They really don't give any guidance that's sufficient to tell you how you're complying with your contract. The point of this clause is to mandate that agencies during the procurement process do analysis and they identify which requirements apply and how so that contractors are on notice and can actually implement those requirements. Right, because these rules are coming through the FAR Council, that means it will be incumbent on agencies to ensure that contracts have clauses expressing what these rules are after in those contracts. Yeah, and it can't just be guesswork. I mean, you know, the problem in a lot of instances is that contracting officers are not cybersecurity specialists. They've got mandates coming down from up high saying, you know, include this super broad series of provisions, and they don't have much discretion. Right. They might have the warrant, but in reality, you know, we know how these things work. They can't say, you know, we're going to waive this here or even tell you what applies because our higher up said it all applies. So now they're going to have to actually say, go through a, a process, say this applies, this applies, this applies, this doesn't. And then you as a contractor will bid on that assumption and be able to implement. Are those soft footsteps I hear coming up behind the steps of False Claims Act? <laughs> it's definitely possible for both of these clauses. Uh, an interesting thing with the cyber re- incident reporting clause is it is going to include a mandatory representation with bids that says current accurate and complete reporting has been done for any cyber incident that has uh, occurred previously under this clause and that you've been flowing down the clause appropriately. And that's the language that you see in the Truth and Negotiations Act or now, I guess, the Truthful Cost and Pricing Data Act where current, accurate, and complete is used, and that becomes the hook for False Claims Act liability. Sure. Tina has some pretty sharp nails when it comes to push comes to shove there. And so what are you advising contractors to do? For example, are there any provisions, and these are long rules, that you are advising them to get up on their hind legs and say, wait a minute, here in the commenting? At this point, you know, we're, we're working on comments that are just going to be asking a lot of questions to define terms better. The definition of information technology is really, really broad here. How the the reporting obligation actually applies to contractors is not clear. The definition of the incident itself is really broad. So a lot of the process for the next couple of months is going to be trying to get clarity on basic definitions. There are some provisions in here that are really challenging to swallow. The standardizing rule that's going to come out has this indemnification provision that is frankly crazy. 
It applies a strict liability standard. It doesn't matter how uh, whether you were negligent or not. If there's any damage that happens to the government because of information that you've introduced into a government system, you, know, you have to cover every damage the government could possibly have. I mean, that's nuts. You would never accept that in a commercial context. Why should the government be getting that, particularly with small contractors? Yeah, so potentially then you could be on the hook for, and I'm just making this up as a potential, but the 10 years of paying the credit report protection program for 10,000 employees or something. Or 100,000 or a million. I mean, look at the size of the OPM breaches that have happened. They're huge. So yeah, I mean, that's right. And this applies below the simplified acquisition threshold too. So you've got a $50,000 contract that this clause applies to. And, you know, somehow a virus gets in to your program through no fault of your own in this instance, you still are on the hook for a million employees having credit monitoring for 10 years. For that matter, the virus could come in from the government itself. <laughs> yeah, that, I wouldn't be too surprised. <laughs> right. Well, they're on the way, and so everybody should comment. Zach Prince is a partner at the law firm Haynes Boone. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many 
different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any 
technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.